Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moiselle, and these are the women who rule. Welcome back to She Dynasty. I am especially excited for today's episode because today we are talking to Emily Ketchin. Emily is the Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer of the Intelligent Devices Group and International Markets at Lenovo. And Lenovo is the largest PC company in the world. Emily has over 30 years of experience in marketing and communications and over 20 years in various leadership roles. She's now leading the charge at one of the top global tech companies in the world. Hi, Emily. Hi there. How are you today? I am so, so good. This is um, really, really um, an important episode to me. Just, uh, I think a lot of people know that uh, I've worked with Lenovo for many, many years. And so being able to have you on my podcast is just, um, you know, super meaningful. So thank you for being here. Well, I want to thank you very much for having me from the moment that I heard about the Xi Dynasty I have been both intrigued and a fan. So I'm super delighted to be here to be part of your extended story and the stories that you share with everybody. It's really an honor. So thank you for having me, Valerie. You're absolutely welcome. And, you know, She Dynasty is a little different. I know you've done lots of interviews. Today, I'm hoping that my audience can get, you know, a little more personal with you, learn a little bit about what drives you, what motivates you, you know, what makes you passionate about what you do. And mostly, you know, really learn about your journey and how you got to where you are today. Um, So many people listening are starting out in their careers. And as you know, She Dynasty is a way to inspire and mentor people along their their paths. So just uh, really excited about, um, you know, all that you're going to be talking about today. Thank you. I am too. And what a, a great opportunity to share a little bit about the journeys that we um, have undergone. One of the things that is so interesting to me, Valerie, is that being a little bit older, being a little bit further in my career, I have this opportunity to look over my shoulder and see how things that I did when I was younger have led me to where I am. And I'm hoping that part of our story today together can help to reassure the listeners and our audiences that you really will end up in the right place. It may not feel like it in the moment. So I think I think it'd be very fun to dig into that. But I have the benefit of being in my mid-50s and being able to sort of look a bit over my shoulder and say, huh, I didn't know it then, but that experience has really helped me hone this skill or that skill. And in, in a lot of cases, pay it forward. In other cases, um, just be willing and open to the journey. So hopefully we'll be able to dig into some of that. And yeah, I love that. And I think it's a really good point that you bring up because people can look at where you ha- where you are now and say, wow, you know, that's something I dream to or a position or a place I dream to get to. But there's a lot that went into getting there, including, I'm sure, a lot of hard times and, you know, what I call snags and shifts and, you know, different kind of twists and turns along the way. So we're going to dig in a little bit on on that today. I love it. Let's do it. 
All right. So um, as you know, we're going to start from the very, very beginning. You have a very interesting upbringing. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, where you're from, where you grew up, a little bit about your childhood. And, you know, what did you want to do when you were a child? What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Love it. So I, I do think maybe I have a little bit of um, an unusual story in that I was a kid who really grew up in what's called the third culture. And that's even sort of an interesting term, right? What is the third culture? The backstory here is that my dad worked for a big international banking company. Uh, now today it's Citibank. Um, and he was posted all over the world in different jobs. He'd gone to school to get an international degree. He ended up in an international job and I was born in Brazil. And then our family moved to Greece and then France and then Norway and then Spain and then Scotland before we moved to the United States. So what is the third culture? It's interesting because when we were, for example, in Greece, I was neither Greek nor American. And so my brother and I lived in the third culture. And it's talked about a lot today, but it certainly wasn't when I was a kid. It just was our normal to not necessarily fit right in, to not necessarily know what to say at school, what to do at school. Certainly, we didn't know the languages. Um, and so I think that had a really profound impact on the way that I see the world. We got really good at learning languages quickly and children learn language by ear so that we could assimilate and make friends. And my dad will tell a funny story of when we lived in Greece, I would only speak English to my parents and I would speak Greek to everyone else. And so family would come into town to visit and I would just natter away at them in Greek and they would think it was the strangest thing. But I think that set a foundation for um, what kind of has added up to today a couple of different elements. One, I'm really comfortable being uncomfortable because I think as a kid, I grew up sort of on the edges, observing what were these kids doing? What were the grownups doing? What were they eating? What were they experiencing? Can you imagine the change in going to a place like Norway where there's snow on the ground nine months out of the year and we skied to school? Very, um, very varied way to kind of grow up, which I think is interesting. Um, I'm also a risk taker. I will take a strategic risk. And I think it's because I learned early that to put yourself out there was to either be rewarded with friendship and acceptance, and in many cases not. But that if you didn't take that sort of strategic risk, it it certainly didn't come full circle. So that is something I think that has laddered to where I am today. And then for sure, Valerie, this is a huge underpinning to my real desire to embrace and drive change in the world of diversity and inclusion. I can't say that I have faced a lot of the challenges that others have faced, but I can certainly relate and empathize with what it might feel like to not belong. And so I think that has put a good lens for me on what my journey has been like and how important it is to me to drive an environment of inclusion and warmth and kindness. I want people to feel comfortable. I want them to enjoy their jobs and to enjoy the environment. And isn't it interesting that that all comes from things that were way beyond my control as a child? Children face what their parents face. They go where their parents live. Um, 
And in some cases you experience in in different ways what your parents experience in different cultures. And so I think that was a real setup for me in terms of the things I have pulled forward into my own career and into the way that I like to think that I lead. I love that. I mean, how fitting that you, you know, are leading marketing for a global company. The fact that you've gotten to experience all these different countries, it's probably really helped in so many ways with the job that, you know, that you have. I think without a doubt, I have always loved being in global roles. I haven't always been in them. There have been some that have been more North America centric or, you know, other places, maybe not quite as wide. Uh, in their remit, we we got the chance, Valerie, to move to Singapore as a family, and and we can come back to this, I'm sure, as as our our conversation continues. But I wanted to give my girls the gift of living in a different culture and understanding what that feels like. And I remember when they were doing their kind of onboarding or cultural training, they were taught the third culture. Just to bring it back to that for a beat. It was fascinating to hear somebody actually vocalize that to them and for them to truly understand that while there may not be a level of total acceptance, that for them, there was a name for this. And they were American children living in Singapore going to a French school. (laughs) They might have had the fourth culture um, thrown in. But I, I think you're right. I think it's made me really love global roles. I feel very at home in most corners of this far flung earth. Um, and I love interacting with um, the different cultures and, and different people and different ways of thinking and approaching and problem solving, which is really important when you work for a global company. In our case, as you well know, you know, smarter technology for all, right? That real desire to democratize technology and make it available to everyone. That's really important to me from a purpose perspective. And so it's nice that those fit together, but I think you're right. Having that global perspective has helped a ton. You've lived in so many countries. Are there any specific things that you've taken from different cultures that really stand out to you that have made you be a stronger leader? I think the, probably the most important, and I wouldn't say it's one particular country, is just the real the real ability and understanding to read and adapt. I believe that the best communicators communicate with people from where they sit, not from where the communicator sits. And that is an art I think that I learned by listening to people communicate in different languages, watching facial expressions. I wouldn't say I could read a room when I was young, but I could certainly feel and see in a way that maybe others didn't have the same sensitivity to just because it wasn't a foregone conclusion that this was generally my culture or my people. And so we were always taught as kids to be very respectful of that. And therefore, I think that is a skill that definitely has come from observation, listening, empathizing, really trying to know where the person is coming from. And I I hope that that has added up to being a better listener. Um, the art of listening, remembering details um, about people's lives. I was sharing uh, one of your stories with Wendy yesterday, and it was just, we had had a chat, but I, I loved your story of your upbringing and some of the very famous people that you grew up with that 
weren't famous at the time. They were your friends. These were your people. This was your culture. And it was so great to hear that about your incredible courage in just knowing with this tremendous conviction that you were going to be a business owner and you were going to go do this. And it didn't matter to you who said no, you were going to go do it. Well, that's because it was fascinating because I've enjoyed our time together, but also because I was genuinely listening to your story. And it was just, it was very, um, it was very, I was very taken, I guess is, is what I would say with the stories. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was definitely an interesting time. So I think that that comes from paying attention. And as a kid, you paid attention because you didn't know the language or you had to listen really carefully because there may have been an accent. I think that has served me really well in, in when I was in the agency world and at, on the client side. What did you want to do when you were um, growing up? What, like when you were a child, what did you think you wanted to do? Gosh, you know, I would say there were a range of things. Maybe one of the first things was to be a flight attendant. It's because we we moved around a lot, right? And I thought that was so cool. And I could stand up and I could recite the whole welcome on board. And then as I grew a little bit older, I I had this profound love, which has stuck with me my whole life of animals. And I was certain that I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I was on a track to be a veterinarian. And my mom gave me a great piece of advice, which was, um, we had moved to the United States and she said, why don't you go work in a vet's office? Just go in and be a receptionist or clean and, you know, see how you feel about that. I'd already worked at a dog kennel. I'd already gotten some great, you know, horse stuff under my belt. I'd done some sort of helping things. I would go to horse shows and be an assistant. I will tell you, Valerie, I, I, oof, it was so hard to not be able to communicate with the patient and to see these animals in pain and not be able to explain it's going to be okay or it's not, or people who would have brought a pet home and, and then decided they didn't want it. And so they were there to euthanize their pets. It's just all of those kinds of things. I think I was totally unprepared for, and it was a lifesaver because I ended up not going to you know, a four-year undergraduate program with a vet program only to find out that I probably did not have the right ability to do that job. Wow. So yeah, that's a really good kind of, um, kind of learning moment if you think about it, because there's so many people that in their mind kind of gla- glamorize their future and a job that they think might be perfect for them. But it's such, such great advice to go try it out at any level, whether you're an intern or it's, you know, a starting position within an industry, because you're going to learn really quickly what something's about. You know, I had a similar um, experience when I was a kid before I wanted to be in business. There was a moment when I wanted to I was thinking about being a doctor. I don't know why. Um, But then, you know, really quickly, I had an experience at a hospital where I went and volunteered one day to help draw blood. And I just, I I couldn't deal with it. I mean, that alone just like turned me off from it. I thought, this is not, this is not right for me. So anytime when you're starting out in your career, if you think something's right, you know, it's, it's not a bad idea to give it a shot. You don't have to start at a very, very high position to, you know, to see if something could be a good fit for you. I think it's great advice. And, you know, the more we volunteer in those kinds of situations, I think the better. It's great to do that. I'm a huge believer in volunteering. I do a lot of that with my girls in San Francisco. It's a great way to give back to the community, but it's also a great way to experience different kinds of things and get a feel for what you do and and you don't like. Um, And you don't just, to your point, have to volunteer. I mean, I think the vet job probably in those days paid 
three or four bucks an hour, but boy, was it a great experience to know that was not going to be where I wanted to be. And how great for you to say, Ooh, I thought I wanted this, but the sight of that (laughs) makes me think otherwise, which is a good learning. And you save yourself a lot of heartache and questioning. I think the other thing that's so interesting is, you know, you're obviously helping lead one of the most advanced, you know, technology companies in the world. And you and I, you know, come from a generation that didn't grow up on tech. So, you know, that's a really interesting, you know, juxtaposition if you think about it. And I'm really curious to know, you know, when did your passion for technology start? And, you know, how how easy did you adapt to it? Because obviously our kids, I know we have uh, kids that are similar age, you know, they're born, they're born with cell phones in their hands. It's a very, very different, uh, very different way to grow up. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's it, there's there's two things that came together at the same time on that one, which uh, were very interesting. Kind of again, ability to look a bit over my shoulder, right, in hindsight, and see how these came together. One was a great piece of advice that I was given early on, Valerie, which was about I was about eight years into my career, and I was working for this woman who was a very powerful, seminal leader to me. And one of the things that she said to me was, "You need to go to work." for an agency. It will really benefit your career. If you're going to have a career in marketing, it's so important to see what happens on both sides of the fence. And an opportunity came along to work for an agency in a technical field. It was to go to work on the Toshiba business, which is in Irvine in Southern California. And I think that there was so much change going from the client side to the agency side that fulfilled a really important part of my general curiosity, thirst for knowledge, and I think ability to be somewhat flexible, having grown up in this environment where things were always different from the language to the people to the environment. But then I got a taste of tech. And boy, did I love the, I think it was the intellectual stimulation of understanding that the systems that we built were extraordinary, but I just loved it. I I think I love the dynamic nature of it. The fact that you constantly, constantly are in learning mode um, and the very interesting dimensions of this business that range from really, really high differentiation to the sense that sometimes things can be commoditized and it's a fairly mature business today. What was, what was your very, very first job ever in the history of Emily? First job. My very, very first job was babysitting in our community in the East Bay here in California. We'd moved here. I've always loved children. And I I got really into it and really enjoyed it and circled a few girlfriends in the neighborhood who I met over time to do it with me and got myself into a little bit of hot water because I raised the rate from a dollar an hour to a dollar fifty an hour for all of us at the same time, knowing that. If one of us didn't move the price, we'd be in trouble. So my little consortium of babysitters was my first, like, really, you know, we can do this, girls. And I loved it. It, it taught me a lot about people, families, children, priorities. It was really, it was a great, great job. Um, and it turned into cleaning houses, which at the end of the day, funded my first course that I bought for myself when I was a kid. If you asked me, Valerie, what the first job I had to interview for more formally, that would be the one that goes back to the comment about animals. And I got a job at a dog kennel 
which I loved. And it was very antithetical for me as a teenager. We had to be there very early in the morning, letting the dogs out and cleaning their kennels. And that's not really a delight first thing in the morning, but I loved it. And I would work there the whole day long. And I enjoyed interacting with customers. I enjoyed answering the phone, making reservations. I spent a lot of time cleaning because I was the new new kid on the block, so to speak. And I remember the first Christmas or holiday season that I worked there, our family had to hold everything on Christmas morning because the animals had to eat and the animals had to be cared for. And my mom was like, well, I think we'll wait for you. And I was like, that was very sweet. I just remember, you know, moments of that job, but I loved it. And I worked there for a long time, summers off and on and really enjoyed it. It's a great job. The reason I like to ask that is because I wonder is, you know, is there a, a learning or a takeaway from that job that you you feel like you still kind of apply to the work you do today? Well, when you're working with people's children and people's pets, those are some of their most beloved, um, beloved, what are they? Their belongings, family members, their most sort of emotional attachments. And I think if you can do that well and artfully and understand what's important to those family members and and parents, um, you can gain a really good understanding of humanity and my job was to make those parents feel really comfortable when their children were in my care and to make the furry parent parents feel the same way when their fur babies were in our care. And so understanding what was important to them, you know, we had a lot of older dogs on specific medications that was a little daunting or they had to be walked a certain way. That's a big responsibility for a 16-year-old. And I really enjoyed it and I really endeavored to make those people feel like their animals and their children were in the best of care. And that was very motivating to me. So I think that that's, that's probably stuck with me for a long time. Yeah. I think there's a lot of pressure on, um, you know, younger generations right now to start your career earlier and not to experiment with jobs, you know, like that. I started in retail and I, I swear that that just changed, you know, who I was. It gave me the ability to be able to talk to people and give an opinion on, you know, telling them how I thought that they, they looked in the clothing they were trying on to make suggestions, to feel like my, my opinion mattered and, you know, I think that that's also a really, a really great thing for people to hear is that sometimes those jobs, those, those lessons that you learn that you think are not, you know, so important are so incredibly valuable. I couldn't agree more with you. And when I graduated from my understanding that animals may not be the way forward, I got a job in retail. And you and I could talk about that all day long, the incredibly valuable lessons you learn there. And I, I I did that all the way through college, in fact, just kept right on going until I stepped into internships. And I think it's a, boy, is that a great way to understand humanity and understand yourself. So I'm 100% with you on that one. And it wasn't quite as furry and fuzzy as working with the creatures. So I really enjoyed that part too. We got to kind of dress up. Did you guys dress up when you went? Because you had to kind of... Of course. Right? It of course. Made you, feel, you had to feel like a grown-up. You had to right. feel responsible. You were, you know... All, many times you were catering to people or women who were older than you. So you wanted them to take you seriously. So if you think about that, that gives you tools and lessons and potentially, you know, interviewing later in your life. 
You know, there's just so many little nuanced things that you learn from, you know, some of these other jobs that people, you know, really take for granted. And I keep pointing out to my teenage daughters, like when they tell me about these experiences, they're like, oh, this is just a silly job. But I stop and we talk about what happened that day. And I point out like the lessons learned and how they're going to carry those forward and how, how important they are. It's so good that you do that. I'm going to take a page out of your book and start pointing out some of those lessons. How do you do that and not get the Olympic eye roll? Oh, the Olympic eye roll is just, you know, that's part of, that's part of the, that's part of how it goes when you have teenage daughters, right? (laughs) Oh yes, it is indeed. So Emily, how old were you when you moved to the U.S.? I was 13 when we moved to the U.S. So I feel in a lot of ways, like the way that I look at the world and the way that I think about things is not necessarily U.S. centric. It's kind of interesting. I am a citizen. I love living here, but I also have a very easy time seeing how others see us just because of the nature of not growing up here. And were your your parents were, were both American, I'm assuming? No, actually, my father is an American, but my mother was Scottish. She was very British and very Scottish and somewhat formal. She's been gone a long time now. Um, never got to meet my girls. So I think this year is is 22 years. So it's been a long time. But yes, she was a huge force in my life. And, um, and yes, very British. Very sweet. Heather. I'm sorry to hear that you lost her at a young age. Did you feel like an American when you came here or did you feel like a foreigner? I I don't think I truly felt like an American. No, Uh, I had been to America to see my grandparents, but they were from South Carolina, which is very, very different to California. And the first place that we moved to in the U.S. was San Francisco. And so very, very different, but very excited. I'd heard a lot about the golden state of California, right? That was pretty exciting. So I I think I did not necessarily feel like an American. And I certainly was not like any of the American kids that I became friends with over time at all. Did you ever have, um, just because you've lived in so many different countries, did you ever have different accents? I mean, you sound so American to me, but I'm just curious, did that kind of evolve over time? Yes, it it definitely did. And my mother never lost her accent, but mine is very malleable. So when I go home to Scotland, where we have a house and we go every year, I start to slip into my Scottish brogue. And it's very gentle, but I will start to morph into that. My dad has kind of even picked it up himself. Um, And I enjoy putting on different accents for, you know, different moments of levity, for sure. All right, we're going to shift. I want to talk a little bit about some of, you know, the sparks uh, along your journey. So one of the sparks that you mentioned was um, participating in Outward Bound California in high school. And you talked about how that was really a transformative time for adulthood. Tell us a little bit about that spark. Yeah, it's a great spark. You know, I went to a school here in the East Bay where you had to complete their wilderness experience, which was completely based on the outward bound model in order to be able to graduate. It was not an option. And my brother did it before I did. So I had some great learned lessons around the right clothing, the right boots, all of that kind of good stuff. I really had no idea, though, what I was in for. And it was a 25 day experience in Yosemite 
with one resupply, 10 kids in our patrol, two instructors. And you have the sense that it's a very physical endeavor. And in high school, Valerie, I would say I was probably not as fit as the other kids. There was some stigma. I was a little overweight. You know, I had the teenage acne. I was not a very confident high school kid. And this is my junior year, my junior summer. And so I was dreading it. Ugh, I just knew I was going to get the business for being slower and weaker. And it was such a seminal experience for me. I came out of that stronger. I began to really learn how to lead. And I had this extraordinary moment at the end of the experience where I was able to really confront some of the the perceptions versus realities that had happened in our journey with some of these kids who were still stuck in the Emily before the experience versus the Emily in the experience. And it was this really powerful kind of last night, penultimate night. Um, we were sitting around the campfire. And I I asked these kids why they treated me the way that they did and why they behaved the way that they did. And it was super, super powerful. That is the power of an experience like an outward bound. And it's it's far more emotional and intellectual, much more in my experience about the mind. Once you get the rhythm of the physical piece of it, and you've got a 75 pound pack, and we climbed to 12,264 feet, we bivouacked at allows, you know, 11,000 feet, we did a solo experience, yada, yada. Um, it's really about how you navigate human relationships, how you give, we had to cook dinner every night, somebody had to clean every single night, you really see right in front of you, what is unfolding versus what you thought that you knew from spending four or five years with these kids in high school. And so that taught me a heck of a lot about leadership. And it gave me an incredible sense of confidence to be able to do really anything I set my mind to it. I I went in, I think, very insecure, very unsure, all these different countries, all these different experiences, the perceptions of these kids that I didn't think were accurate, kind of called that to task and was validated by these kids who apologized and burst into tears and realized they hadn't been super fair, that power, I think, set me on a course to be much, much more confident than I think I would have been. And my pay it forward moment for that, Valerie, is to be on the board of OBCA in California, which I just started in March. And it's really a gift to be able to be a part of that organization steering this experience for others. So I'm super excited about that. But I think that was my my moment. Yeah, you know, you're you're touching on something else that I think is an incredible kind of um, learning moment that's probably carried through to your leadership style now. And that is how important it is to, you know, get to know people and make personal connections and learn about what drives them and not always have, you know, such cold business conversations because it sounds like there was a relationship with that you had with these people before. And then once you were kind of forced to be in this this time and space and 
you know, kind of struggle together, they got to know the real Emily and all of a sudden barriers were broken down. Teamwork probably started to happen. All of a sudden communication started happening in a different way. And what happens from that is just a very deep kind of respect. And it sounds like that is an incredibly life-changing moment that I'm, I know just kind of watching what you do is, is how you lead today. It was a life changing moment. It really was. And the experience was that way. I think it's kind of interesting too, Valerie, that it took me some time to process that. I mean, I had a stellar senior year because I stopped worrying what people thought. (laughs) It was just great. And that came from the empowerment of this experience. Like I can do it. There's no reason I can't do it. There's nothing that anyone here in this place has that I don't have. And so your own worst enemy is yourself in some cases. And just breaking through that and having the confidence and being validated to know that I was right and it was going to be okay, I think set me on a different trajectory for sure. Love that. So you said you're on the board now of OBCA. Yes. And has it has the program changed much since you've been there? You know, I think that um, it's really evolved. I think the fundamentals are there and I'm you know, I'm just a few weeks in, so I'm on this journey of really learning more about it, learning the different committees. We have our board meeting coming up in a couple of weeks. It's the first one that I'll be attending in person. And I'm just super excited about where the organization is today in California and then where it can go from here. And of course, (laughs) I'm coming in with all kinds of ideas and thoughts. And so it'll be interesting to see where that, that takes us as well. But I'm super excited to be a part of it. And um, looking forward to serving, serving the cause on that board. Fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to shift now to um, some snags, just because um, as we talked about, it's not always roses getting to your dream job or to such an amazing place in your career. And like every other woman who I have talked to on She Dynasty, I'm sure you've had many, many snags. You know, it's really about those moments that have shaped you. And, you know, we talk so much about how the snags are just as important as the wins because that's where you get the greatest learnings. And so, you know, I'd love for you to, you know, tell us about some some moments in your career that were were really tough learning moments or moments that really helped you kind of figure out how how you needed to make a shift and what you did next. I just could not agree with you more. I think the the lessons learned from mistakes are oftentimes the most painful but the most valuable. And I've got some I've got some good ones. The list of mine is very very long. Like I think for a lot of people you just it happens and it's how you learn. And so I'll share a couple of them with you. One is a very simple one but so mortifying, Valerie, that my my cheeks were a stinging red with just humility and, and mortification. I, it was early days in my career. Um, I was working for somebody who was going to be honored at a luncheon for a lot of work they had done in our industry. And I very glibly made the mistake between the Beverly Hills Hotel and the Beverly Glen Hotel. And this was way before there were cell phones and maps and Google and all these wonderful things to help you. Not that that's an excuse, but I was, you know, dressed and ready, car ready, but really not so clear on where we were going as it turns out. And so we walk in and I've tried to help prep with the comments and thinking, this is just so great. And I got to go. 
And they looked at me like I had five heads. I'm terribly sorry. There's not, there's not an event here. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? There's not an event here. We're here for a luncheon. It's da, 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 da. And it turns out that by virtue of a very helpful person making some phone calls, I realized we were at the wrong hotel. And so what do you suppose happened in LA? We were late and it was mortifying. And here you are with the egg on your face and there is nowhere to go. There is nowhere else to take that mortification. And it was just, oh my goodness, here I was, right? Oh, I get to go and I'm dressed and ready and that this is going to be so great. And what I think I learned so importantly from that, that particular lesson that is has stuck with me right up until the beginning of our call, right? Where you saw me do this, is to be prepared. You cannot over-prepare. It is not a good look to wing it. Um, you don't have to be so formal in everything that you do, but I think that preparation is everything. And it, it is what sets people apart when you know that they're prepared, when you know that they're ready, when you know that they have done their homework, so to speak. And so the pain of that experience has stuck with me for a long time. And it was a superb lesson. And my girls know all about being prepared. So important. <laughs> you know, the key, the key that people have to pick up on in that story is that you didn't have a cell phone. You didn't have a way to Nothing. it in an instant. That, no, there was no way out. Yeah, I mean, that is, I, I think for some of our listeners, that might be a difficult thing to comprehend because how that exponentially makes that that situation more complicated. You're trying to figure things out with a landline, without a way to Google it, without a way to, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a game changer. It is a game changer. That's right. That's right. And I am, I am that old, Valerie, that we did not have those tools at our hands and you couldn't like navigate the quickest way to get there or grab an Uber or you're exactly right. It was, it was, and you'd have to go get the car out of the valet and then you'd have to drive across town and park again. And it was truly, truly epic. So yes, and I'm sure we underestimated ever so slightly the time it would take to get there on top of all of that. I mean, we might've walked in when they were halfway into the speeches. I can't remember because I'm sure I blocked it out, but I, I did not walk out how mortifying it was to be the rookie. <laughs> Not good. I had a, an epic mistake in in, in my um, early days too. It was one of my first jobs. Um, I moved from retail to uh, working for, um, now he has passed away, but Max Azria, who owned BCBG. And this was before he, um, you know, became this, you know, world famous brand and designer. Um, but he put me in charge of um, printing, you know, the tags that go in the back of your shirt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was working for him when his brand just started out and I'll never forget the day that he came in because he got his first million dollar order from Nordstrom. <gasps> it was a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal. It was a game changer. It was the moment that was going to change everything for him. And it was my job to, um, fill out the little information on the back of the tag. And I typed one number wrong. And when the order was shipped to every Nordstrom in America, it was, it was, denied because that number was wrong. <laughs> they shipped everything back. So I had a moment like that and, oh, it was so humbling. And I, like you, realized like attention to detail, being prepared, checking my work, you know, just caring about what you're doing matters so much. That moment sticks with me in my head so much. And I bet that that moment sticks with you, even though it was so many years ago, and it probably drives you to be more detail oriented and be more prepared. Without a doubt. 
I, you know, BCBG, Bon Chic Bonjon. I just, that is the greatest brand. Loved it when I was young. And, and to this day, it, that's really, that's amazing. I did not know that you were there before it was big and famous. And, you know, you hear those stories of like, we're in the warehouse, we're tagging the clothes, here we go. And you you kind of can't really comprehend that everybody started somewhere, right? Totally. But um, it is a similar experience. Um, I, uh, I'm feeling for you. I got yelled at. I think I got fired actually, but he hired me back. So I appreciated that. I just needed a moment to reflect, but um, all good. You had, you talk about another incident where you received some critical executive feedback. And I think this is a really important one because feedback, I believe is truly a gift. And there's nothing that excites me more than someone who can actually listen to positive feedback and accept it and understand how crucial it is to your growth. So tell us about that. Well, this is one that um, is is particularly meaningful from the standpoint that um, I... I'll just back it up a half a beat and tell you I could I could tell and understand that this particular executive wasn't really forthright in how they were feeling about my work. And I just knew something was off. I couldn't quite figure out what it was, but there was something that wasn't coming together in the way that we were communicating, the way that we were working. And I knew that something was happening there. And so one of the things that I think is really important, and I learned this from a great leader, and that is to to name the problem. It's really difficult to uh, work in in a state where you don't know what the problem is. And it's such a great tool, even today, when people start to get concerned and worried and this and that, name, let's just take a breath and let's name the problem. So that was what I was trying to find out, Valerie, is what is it? What is the problem? And I couldn't get an answer. And so I chatted with somebody in our HR organization and I said, you know, that that it's just not okay. I, I have to know what the feedback is. I really, really need to understand. And I have a real thirst for what is it that we could be doing better? I tend to hear the positive feedback and I think it's great. And a lot of women discount that. I would encourage women not to discount that. I'm like, great, 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 great. But what's the problem? Or what do you need me to fix? And I couldn't get a line on that. And it was super frustrating, but I also didn't want it to impact my career. I didn't want a, well, I'm not sure about this person or whatever whatever the hyperbole was or whatever the feedback was, I, I wasn't getting anything um, that I could I could act upon. And when I pushed, it it was almost even worse. What I got was lax executive presence. And I, first of all, I, I hadn't heard that one before. Um, and it it didn't give me a lot of, what's the roadmap to fixing that? What do I do about that? And so I I turned that into an opportunity. And when you lack executive presence, one of the great things that you can do is get some coaching. Was able to get a a line on a coach who, um, yeah, I went through an incredible process. Interviewed four different coaches, selected one, um, and that coach is still with me today, a decade or more on, right? And 
He has been so seminal in my own journey of development that what was a really bad situation, Valerie, for me and for my career turned out to be a wonderful silver lining in that it turned into this great opportunity to get a coach. And I did the hard work on myself and did the self-examination. But the real snag here is um, when you feel something and when you're not sure what it is, ask. And I agree with you 100%. Feedback with the right intent and cogent examples and a way out is the best gift you will ever receive. And as much as it hurts, and as much as you want to, to maybe be defensive about it, the greatest thing that you can do is listen. In this case, the real snag was, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. What, what am I not doing right? What am I not getting? And to have it boil down to that really made me feel like he doesn't like me. That's kind of what this is about. Well, you've definitely, you've definitely yeah. solved that because you have amazing executive presence now. So kudos to you on that and your coach. So you have really obviously done the hard work. So, but I think you're right. You know, feedback is tricky. It is a gift. It you you bring up a really good point. It has to come from the right person with the right intentions. And so that is something to really think about. It has to be someone who actually cares about your path and your growth. Um, because sometimes, you know, not everyone has the best intentions. And so it has to be from someone that you actually respect and someone you know has the, your best interests at heart. It's so important that you feel that before you consider the feedback, because sometimes the wrong feedback can send you spiraling if it's from somebody who doesn't have the right intentions. So, you know, just again, a really good point and something to think about. I also think for, you know, your listeners who are managers, be really conscious of that. It is a gift that you're giving to people, but if they are not in a place to receive, it won't land. And it has to be a very safe place. It has to be a very constructive place. And it generally along with some examples, there needs to be some guidance from you, the leader, around what do I go do about this? Or some, and sometimes, Valerie, and you know this, sometimes it's a fit thing. It's feedback because it just isn't a fit. We've, we've all heard that. We've all been down that path before. And in some ways, that can be a relief. But if it doesn't land in a way that's safe, to your point, it's a spiral. It's super negative, And you've hurt somebody and injured them you know, for a very long time in their livelihood. So it's a huge responsibility. And I think, you know, as you get more adept at both giving and taking feedback, you're probably more sensitive and empathetic. But the greatest growth for me has always come from people who have been willing and forthright and honest. And they can show you why what they're sharing with you is either going to be an impediment or there might have been a better way to do it. Or I will have your back as you grow. You know, a follow-on experience in the same company was somebody who committed to me with a badge on the table that he would do everything it took to see that that my career advanced if I committed to him that I would do what it took to grow. So a completely diametrically opposed experience, but one that, and anytime he ever gave me any feedback, I was hungry, 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 and I knew it came from the right place because he invested in me and he walked the walk. So it's it's fascinating how it can be one person or one moment or one experience that can really set you back. In this case, there was a great outcome, but that's not always the case. And so how you make the snags into something hopefully good for you is one piece of it. But the other piece of it is, is just to make sure also when that happens, that you talk to others, right? Seminal to this story is the advice that I got from 
the HR leader who said, let's go name this. Let's go figure out what this is all about. And then we can solve for it. All right. We're going to move on to a shift in your career. So you described this idea of learning to embrace the uncomfortable when the pressure is being um, the edge you put on a path to leadership. Tell us how you got there and how you stay there. I think that for me, the the greatest the greatest moment here was around acceptance. And the acceptance is that I love change. I love a very dynamic environment. I'm very curious. I am um, pretty energetic and I like change. I embrace change all these years later because it was the story of my life from this country to that country, to this school, to that school, to this experience. And so I think to put a pin in that one, Valerie, it's all about accepting the fabric that is what makes you who you are and using that as a real shift to put it in your arsenal of things that you can do to make yourself stronger and better. And that is probably the best way that I can say that. So Emily, you are, again, CMO of, you know, one of the largest PC companies in the world. You know, you're a woman in a very male-dominated industry. Talk to us about that, how, how you navigate that. I know Lenovo is an incredible company that is so inclusive. But, you know, at the same time, I'm sure there's a, a lot of, um, you know, pressures out there. And I just want to hear about your personal experience from that perspective. It, it, it harkens back to an experience that I had as a child. Again, this this sort of look over your shoulder and see how things all accrete together. Um, you know, I will say that Lenovo is an incredible, incredible company, and the level of value that is placed on inclusion, hearing everybody out, understanding global perspectives has been a great fit for me. It's very aligned to the way that I think. In the context of being in a very male-dominated world, here's an interesting anecdote. I, as a child, was put into a Scottish boarding school at the age of 10. So I left home in Spain at 10 and went to boarding school in Scotland with my brother. And it was an all-boys boarding school that knew that they would need to accept girls in order to be able to stay open. And there were four of us who were brought in as the first four girls ever. Um... And we were all sisters of existing students and we're still friends all these decades later. But that made me super comfortable in a men's world because there I was in an all boys school and boys can be very tricky and mean at that age. Not all, but it was a very difficult time. I was away from home. I was homesick. I had my older brother, but it wasn't the same. And so I think that that gave me a really big edge. So I, I think that that experience in this all-boys boarding school really helped me understand how to navigate, how to compete, how to communicate. Um, and it has served me so well in this business. It is very male-dominated and it can be very difficult to get ahead in a club or in a situation where there are people who feel like their relationships are different than yours. And again, it's one of the things I love so much about Lenovo is there's so many different cultures and so many different perspectives and diversity of thought and diversity of inclusion that it's been a great home for me. And it's allowed me to, I think, feel very comfortable and excel in this environment. But boy, was that a good learning ground for me when I was just a little one. 
Oh, for sure. I love that. Again, showing how those experiences from your childhood translate to today is so incredible. All right. Well, I think um, I think you've answered, you know, most of my questions. What I'd like to do now is what I call my rapid fire questions, where I'm just going to ask you a quick question. First thing that comes to your mind, um, you know, is kind of what I'm looking for. And um, we'll start with Emily, when it comes to kind of your professional life, what keeps you up at night? I worry most about the digital divide. I worry that that is going to continue to um, create this environment of, you know, a, a lack of tech devices getting into the hands of everybody, meaning that they can't compete appropriately. And so that keeps me up at night. And how do we in this incredible company help to bridge that divide? If you could completely switch careers, do something totally different, what would it be? I would probably be an equestrian or I would be in the medical field. I love, 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 love that whole area, health and wellness. What is your superpower? My superpower is persuasion. What is your greatest weakness? My greatest weakness is the tendency towards perfectionism. Yeah, it's not always the best uh, best thing to have. No, it's not a good one. It's also really important to talk about and expose when you have girls who, right? I think you and I have, have probably even talked about this element of it. It's not a good one. And so trying to debunk that and trying to understand it is really important. There was one kind of skill you wish you could do better, one thing that you wish you were stronger at, what would it be? And it doesn't have to be work-related. For me, I wish I could sing. (laughs) I wish I could sing too. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot. You do not want to be anywhere near me when there are musical notes coming out of my mouth. What advice would you give your younger self? I would give my younger self the advice that is anchored to really giving myself permission to keep exploring, not put so much pressure on myself. You know, when you're in high school, you're thinking about college. When you're in college, you're thinking about your first job. When you're in your first job, you're thinking about the latter. I would just say, relax and smell the flowers and enjoy your life and really focus on enjoying the journey and being present. Awesome. And finally, what does success mean to you? How do you define it? I think I define success much more closely with um, gratitude and satisfaction than with anything material. And in particular, seeing my girls grow up, um, I'm so fortunate to be um, in a marriage where my husband stays home to really enable all that I do. So that is, for me... Um, a big part of what success looks like is how you drive that harmony in your own home to be able to do the best work you can at work and at home and at play, truly. Emily, thank you. You've answered all of my questions today. And you know what I love about this interview is I think it's a little different than a lot of the interviews you've done because what I really wanted was people to get a little bit more of a personal sense of what drives you, what motivates you, a little bit about your past to understand about, you know, how you got to where you are today. So really happy that people get to hear a little glimpse into your journey. So thank you. Thank you for being here today. You're an incredible inspiration to a lot of people and especially to me. So thank you. 